Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slashfilm Daily for August 2nd, 2017. On today's episode, we'll be answering a mailbag question about superhero origin stories. In, in the news, we'll be talking about a Nightmare Before Christmas sequel, but it's not what you think. James Bond 25 rumors, uh, a secret Star Trek series that might be a Wrath of Khan reboot, MTV rebooting Total Request Live, and a lot of behind-the-scenes troubles on the Dark Tower. And in our feature presentation, we'll be talking about how Game of Thrones is moving much, much faster now. And is that a good or bad thing? I'm Peter Serretta, and with me today are... Jacob Hall. Brad Oman, a.k.a. Ethan Anderton. And Ben Pearson. Let's jump right into the mailbag, guys. Kyle from North Carolina asks, It seems like one of the things that people enjoy most about Spider-Man Homecoming is the handling of the origin story. Do you think that more superhero franchises or superhero slash franchise movies will opt to skip the origin story? Or do you think that this, do you think this would be a good idea? Um, what do you think, Brad? I mean, personally, I hope so. Mostly because a lot of the superheroes that are getting treated like this nowadays are origins that we already know. And even if they aren't, I feel like just throwing us into the mix and having us figure out who they are and what their powers are and not knowing how they get them is much more interesting than it is seeing maybe 45 minutes of them figuring out who they are and how to use their powers. It's it's basically like watching a 45 minute training montage. It's you know that's why training montages are only a couple minutes because it speeds things up and it gets us to the point where we're ready to see our main character, you know, prepared and fully ready to do whatever they were preparing to do in the first place. And so I feel like, you know, if we get a new Green Lantern, I hope we don't get an origin story. Or if they happen to do another Blade movie, I don't need to, you know, re- hear about what happened with Blade or anything like that. I, I would love to be just thrown into the mix and figure out who the character is as a fully formed hero rather than having to figure out all this stuff from the beginning. But Brad, what if I like training montages? Then go um, watch them on YouTube. 
No, I don't think that there's a problem with superhero origin stories. I think the origin stories are oftentimes the the best part. Like, um, you know, see seeing Superman discover his powers and that original, uh, Richard Donner Superman. Um, or I mean, uh, the, him crashing to Earth and all that stuff. Um, is is great fun. I think the problem comes when you have three Spider-Man reboots within, you know, fifteen years. <laughs> and the public is well aware of the origin story. We don't need a retelling. Um, ben, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think you just hit on it right there. And that's something that Brad was sort of mentioning, too, is like uh, a lot of the future movies, the more superhero movies there are, the more likely it is that reboots will not have to rely on origin stories going forward because they already exist. But I sort of agree with you, Peter. I think especially for characters that might be more niche or whatever, I think uh, general audiences probably need to have that, uh, you know, shown to them on the screen uh, before they can move on into the action as a whole. Um, Just to understand, you know, what are the rules that this character is playing by? You have to sort of uh, lay the groundwork a little bit. And I think Spider-Man Homecoming has been the beneficiary of, you know, yeah, 15 years of Spider-Man movies that came before it. So, uh, yeah, I think in in future instances uh, with characters that we're already familiar with, absolutely skip the origin story. But anything that that audiences maybe haven't seen before, uh, it's probably a good idea just to, yeah, to sort of lay that track and let everybody know what playing field we're all operating on. I think also part of the trouble is once you're doing the, the superhero origin story, you also have to do the villain origin story. And it's just too much to fit into one movie most times. And the, and the villain usually gets the shaft. Um, Jacob, do you think what they did with Spider-Man Homecoming, with skipping the origin story completely, is, is something that could be done in other franchise movies? I think so. I think we've already seen it a little bit in Marvel with Guardians of the Galaxy, which throws you in these characters and actually doesn't really explain where they come from until the sequel, even with Star-Lord learning more about his father. That's a very good point. Yeah, people getting more comfortable with these weird characters. But at the same time, my barometer for all things superhero is my mother. She calls me every weekend after she sees the latest Marvel movie, and she always tells me what's confusing, um, what, what she loved. Uh, she complains about how Thor's hair is too long and greasy. And <laughs> then she tells me about how she loved Doctor Strange because she did not know the character, she did not know his story, and she was fascinated to see his journey because it's nothing that she had seen before. So yeah, I think with the more popular superheroes, dive right in. We don't need to see Batman's parents get shot again. But when it comes to Doctor Strange or Captain Marvel in a few years, I think audiences are going to dig seeing these pieces of the puzzle that they they did not know uh, get placed there for them. For sure. Um, I think that that pretty much answers the question in the mailbag. Let's move on to the news. First up in the news, a Nightmare Before Christmas sequel is coming almost two and a half decades after the original hit theaters. Uh, But it's not what it sounds like. It's actually a comic book sequel, and it's coming in the form of a manga from Tokyopop, who has gotten the rights. Tokyopop has done a bunch of adaptations of all the like live-action Disney animated uh, retellings, and they even did uh, a manga of Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. This sequel is going to be called Zero's Journey. It's going to come out in spring 2018, and... 
it basically is going to be released as issues and then eventually collected in a trade and a pocket-sized manga that basically Zero gets lost in in uh, in the land of Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, what is that? Christmas Town? Yeah, Christmas Town. Uh, so Zero, uh, Jack Skeleton's dog gets lost and he has to go, you know, find him. It doesn't sound like something that could be the uh you know source material for a potential sequel but um you never know i know um you know disney imagineering is doing a lot of work with marvel and these these comic book uh adaptations of their rides and they're trying to get something going and potentially getting movies made out of these you know using the comic books as a starting off point and that's been done many times before but uh, this doesn't sound like one of them. I'm, I'm sure Disney would want a Nightmare Before Christmas sequel. Uh, what do you guys think? Ben, could we see a Nightmare Before Christmas sequel come from this? Um, I guess. To me, the, the, the original Nightmare Before Christmas was just one of those things that I didn't connect with as much as some of my peers did. It always... Uh, just struck me as like something for the hot topic kids and and i never really found my way into that story i couldn't connect with it on anything other than an aesthetic level so uh i've never really given a second thought to a sequel coming out but um but uh yeah you know anything's possible i i I see an unpopular opinion column brewing right now (laughs) yeah possibly Uh, yeah uh let's move on to james bond James Bond 25 is happening. They've announced that. We don't know much more. We we think Daniel Craig is returning. What do we know about this, uh, Jacob? Well, the truth is we have a release date, which is in 2019. But that's all we really know. Because right <laughs> now, uh, you can go to slashfilm.com and then we can... We started a, a, almost a running joke between me and HT, the, the writer who wrote this article for us how we're officially on Bond Watch Day 1 because every single time it's a new Bond movie every few years, the UK tabloids start spewing out rumors constantly to the point where picking through it all is a nightmare. So look for Bond Watch. But, but today in Bond Watch, we have a title, Shatterhand. We have a Dubrovnik, Croatia filming location, which is where they filmed King's Landing from Game of Thrones and where they filmed key scenes for Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, we have... The rumor that's based on one of Raymond Benson's uh, James Bond novels, which would make this the first James Bond movie uh, that's not an original concept or based on Ian Fleming novel. And the truth is, I'd say about 90% of this is probably BS, because this is, a, this is a mirror, it's a UK tabloid, and this is just the way James Bond cycle works. We get a couple months of BS, followed by a very big, very fancy press conference, followed by filming. So... Right now, we can pick and choose, but right now, we know a release date, we know a lot of rumors, and the fun is going to be seeing how much of this is true and how much of it's totally fake. Next up in the news, Nicholas Mayer's secret Star Trek series may be a Wrath of Khan reboot. Ben, what do we know about this, and do we need another Wrath of Khan reboot? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so Nicholas Meyer, who directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, uh, back in June, he told um, Trek Movie that he was working on a secret Star Trek project that had nothing to do with the upcoming Star Trek Discovery TV series. But he said that he couldn't discuss it at the time. Uh, I think just a couple days ago, uh, an outlet called Geek Exchange claimed that this secret project was a miniseries about Khan, 
uh, who's the villain of the Wrath of Khan. And uh, basically, uh, this outlet called Inverse emailed Nicholas Meyer to ask him about this, and his response was, I cannot possibly comment with, you know, cannot spell with like con is inside the word so you know yeah exactly some uh some you know whatever (laughs) clever (laughs) uh clever pun game there but um but yeah so the the theory behind this you know he hasn't confirmed it yet he says he can't comment but uh the theory is that the miniseries that he's working on if it indeed does focus on con would uh, take place in between when the character was exiled on SETI Alpha 5 after the events of the original series episode Space Seed, which introduced him, and it would take place before the events of The Wrath of Khan, which came out in 1982. So it would sort of uh, you know, cover that period of his exile and show us what Khan, this legendary Star Trek villain, was up to during that time. Um, I don't know, to, you know, Peter, to answer your question, I don't know if we need another uh, con origin story or reboot or anything like that. I feel like this is one of those characters that the Star Trek uh, filmmakers and, and TV producers have become obsessed with, maybe to their own detriment. I feel like the universe that they that they have to operate in, the sandbox is pretty wide open. So to keep coming back to the same characters over and over again seems uh, maybe a little reductive, maybe a little short-sighted. Uh, I feel like there's plenty of room to expand and come up with new creations, new characters. But then again, name brand recognition is the name of the game in Hollywood right now. So, uh, yeah, I would not be surprised if this turns out to be a true thing. I'm just surprised that they're developing two Star Trek series simultaneously because that just doesn't sound like it's going to happen but anyways um moving on uh mtv is rebooting total request live which sounds ridiculous to me because do kids these days even know what a request show is like you know we live in a day of of on demand you can you know go on youtube and pull up anything you know how will they even react to total request live uh how and why brad tell us about this yeah, I mean, <clears throat> MTV is not really at their strongest point right now. They don't really know what they're doing as far as their programming is concerned. And bringing TRL back is kind of part of this new reinvention that they're starting to see. Where they're because for a while they were dabbling with a bunch of scripted shows. You know, that's how we got Teen Wolf. That's how we got uh, Scream. But now they're starting to shift gears and get back towards live programming, which is going to include some new late night stuff and also going back to reality shows and unscripted content, which is kind of where MTV had their bread and butter in the 90s when we had shows like The Real World and Road Rules and all all those kinds of shows. So bringing back Total Request Live is not only a step towards back towards that, but it's also a move towards getting the music back in MTV, which they've always seemed to have struggled with since the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, as for whether or not people care, I guess we'll find out. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right when it comes to how sort of the, the culture has changed as far as how we consume our entertainment because Total Request Live was popular during a time when fast internet was not as readily available as it is now. We didn't have YouTube uh, being plentiful, of full of music videos where we could watch them Whenever we wanted to, we didn't have phones that were full of apps and social media. 
And so, you know, Total Request Live was a show that I often watched when I would come home from high school, and you would, it was one of the only ways you could see some of the more popular music videos at a time when you could expect it, because all of the fan bases came out in full support by, you know, voting online or calling or, you know, texting to vote to see their favorite music videos in the top 10. And I'm not sure that that's something that people are really interested anymore when you can watch those music videos wherever and whenever you want to. They are, they are talking about how the new version of the show will incorporate new kinds of content into things like Snapchat and Instagram and that kind of thing. But I just don't know if this is the kind of show that can be retooled or reinvented in an effective way, you know, based yeah. on how we consume entertainment today. And that just sounds like throwing out some, you know, hip buzzwords in there. It doesn't sound like they have a concept there. And one of the things that always bugged me about TRL, and I used to watch it, is they didn't always show the video that was requested. They'll show like a clip from it, just like they were doing, you know, a top 10 countdown of the day. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what this is going to be. Uh, you know, if, if they're looking for ideas, why don't they bring back Singled Out and they could have uh, Chris Hardwick host it? I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Chris Hardwick doesn't want to return to single. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm just joking that he's still, you know, a host of things. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, let's move on from that. Uh, the dark tower, it looks to be a disaster. It, it hasn't even come out yet, but we're already seeing articles uh, from Variety and other sources talking about the behind-the-scenes troubles. Uh, Jacob, I know you even have some some inside information into what is going on here. What, what do we know about what is going on in behind the scenes of the Dark Tower? Well, a little bit of backstory. Uh, interview director Nikolai Arcel at Comic-Con. And I asked him about the, the film's 95-minute running time, and he assured me in the interview, which the portion of which you can read on SlashFilm.com right now, that it was all part of the plan. They wanted to make a lean, mean first entry. The screenplay was short. It was all part of the intention because the first book was the shortest of King's original books. And once I published that, I got a like, I was contacted by somebody associated with the production who said, you know it's all BS, right? And I said, I'm listening. And so when this Variety story came out, it essentially confirms what I've been hearing, which is that the behind-the-scenes battles on this thing have been pretty nasty from an original cut that was much longer. My source says close to three hours. I, I, I'm going to try to figure out more details that included all kinds of world-building and details and references to deeper Dark Tower lore. But apparently, and this is a Variety story as well, this terrified the studio. It terrified test audiences who were baffled by it. Everybody got personally involved. And Variety reports $6 million in reshoots to change certain key scenes and make certain things clearer and establish more backstory. But my source, and hopefully I'll be able to share more with you in the future, told me they also completely reshot the ending. And it claims that it is a disaster for fans of the book. Hmm. So... I, like I said, I don't want to say too much because we have yeah. irons in the fire and I would like to be able to share more and, and tell you guys what was changed what and what was shot originally. We'll find out. But the but the truth of the fact is that I've heard from Variety, from other from my, my personal source, and from another journalist who has his own separate source that this has been a troubled production, that there's the reason why the trailer was so late was because they were still thinking out this movie was and reshooting it. 
and that nobody is especially happy with how things went from any angle. Going from three hours, supposedly, to 95 minutes, that's like cutting the film in half. Uh, it makes me wonder if we'll ever get to see that longer version of of the movie, maybe, you know, 10 years down the line on an extended edition, you know, I was going to say Blu-ray, but we probably won't have Blu-ray, you know, <laughs> hologram, <laughs> hologram disc, yeah. Yeah. hologram <laughs> download. And that does it for the news. Uh, we're going to leave Brad here. Brad, where can we find more of your work? You can find me at SlashFilm.com or on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And check out my own podcast called Go Flick Yourself, F-L-I-X, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms if you're feeling like some fun. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Brad. And now in our future presentation, Game of Thrones is moving much faster now. But is that a good thing? There's an article on SlashFilm.com. It's a conversation between both of you, Ben and Jacob. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, ben, is why is Game of Thrones going much faster at a much faster pace now more than ever? So uh, this is the seventh season. This is the penultimate season. Things have been happening. The pieces have been laid out uh, deliberately over the past you know, six seasons already. And now everything is finally happening. All of the, the pieces are coming together and the players are, are finally sort of reaching their end game status, right? Things are, are getting to the point where uh, the end is in sight. The end of the, the, the tunnel is right there. So uh, the show has just been... Um, at least in the seventh season so far, jumping around from location to location and characters have been traveling from over over vast distances uh, in a much quicker, more condensed uh, pace than they had in previous seasons. And I expressed some uh, some sort of disorientation and was talking a little bit about how, how jarring I found that. And Jacob thought it would be a good idea to sort of hash out uh, our feelings on this because I think he is a little bit more tolerant of the show's pacing uh, at this stage. So that's what we did in this article. Um, Jacob, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I think I am more forgiving of it than you are, Ben. In the article, I compare Game of Thrones to a Dungeons & Dragons game where in the final run up to the final dungeon, the dungeon master is fudging the dice rolls a little bit to ensure that his players have a satisfying end game. And just, and just sort of breaking the rules just a bit to make sure that the moments that people want are happening. The example you used uh, in our article, Ben, was Bran suddenly arriving at Winterfell. Oh, by the way, spoilers. So if, you're, if, you, if you're listening, spoilers. Is <laughs> uh, Bran suddenly arriving at Winterfell uh, after making his debut at the Wall this season and ha- nobody having sent a raven ahead to say, hey, the heir to Winterfell is alive. You guys should know this. And you argue this breaks the show's internal logic for a show that's so built on a, on world building or the details have mattered so much in every season. This doesn't make sense. And yes, I agree with you as somebody who's devoured all of the books and devoured all these supplemental materials about the history of this world. Yes, you are correct. But Sansa Stark being able to see your brother for the first time in since episode two and that moment for me... I feel like that was Benioff and Weiss, the showrunners, nudging the D20 a little bit to say, you know what, let's crit on this one. Let's have let's pull in the heartstrings instead of have the logical answer. And 
I'm more forgiving of it because I want those moments. I feel like the show is paying off moments that I want as opposed to playing by its own rules. And I understand the frustrations, but I think I'm willing to forgive it more than you are. Yeah, I think you're right. I think ultimately I'll be able to forgive the show's uh, lack of internal logic as long as it can continue to produce emotionally resonant moments like the meeting between the Stark siblings or uh, what I presume to be a big upcoming revelation of John's true lineage. Um, so I think as long as the show... Uh, you know, hits those moments really hard without necessarily distracting, you know, and having that little thing in the back of my head going, ah, I don't know about that Raven. I don't know how this person got there so quickly. Uh, the show did such a good job in the early years of, um, you know, paying close attention to the world of George R. R. Martin and what he did, uh, you know, in the pages of those novels. But I do understand that the novels are different than the show by necessity. You know, he, Martin has all of the the room in the world, really, to craft these stories and, and all the time to get into the nitty gritty details. And I understand that Benioff and Weiss have uh, a whole different set of circumstances and, and uh, you know, restrictions on their end um, that uh, doesn't make it a, a practical thing for them to be able to address every single one of these little concerns so as long as the show ends up being emotionally resonant then i think i'll be able to forgive uh the characters suddenly gained abilities to seemingly teleport all around westeros with no apparent consequences but teleportation here's the thing about teleportation is that if it can, if teleportation means the lancer army getting across the entire continent to highgarden so they can corner Olena Tyrell, then have that scene between Jamie and Olena play out the way it did. If suspending my disbelief for that teleport- teleporting army, it means Olena Tyrell's final scene on Game of Thrones, which may be among the best scenes the show has ever done in terms of writing, acting, and payoff. Screw it, teleport everyone. Get them where they need to be because I want that for the next 10 episodes. I want that as we descend into nonstop climax keep bringing those moments that's all i want i hear you well that does it for this discussion you can read the the whole discussion on slashfilm.com you guys have a whole article with you guys discussing the the pros and cons of the increased pace of the show um and it, it sounds like the pace is going to be changing in season eight or season 7.5 whatever they want to call it uh, it sounds like we're going to be getting, you know, feature length episodes. So I wonder what that is going to mean. And I'm sure you guys can get together for another conversation on uh, Slash Film Daily at that time. Uh, where can we find more of your work online, Ben? Uh, you can find me at SlashFilm.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And Jacob, where can we find you? Every single day at SlashFilm.com and on Twitter where I am at Jacob S. Hall. And you can find me on Twitter at Slash Film. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday on SlashFilm.com. If you are enjoying this podcast, please go to iTunes, review us, rate us, and we will see you tomorrow.